0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Well, we're going to get started right into the message tonight, into the Word of God. So I'd like you to open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 5. And while you're turning there, I'd like to read to you two New Testament scriptures. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then in Colossians 2.13, Paul wrote, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now this evening we want to continue the study of the last of the five Old Testament offerings. There are many more offerings than these, but all of the offerings that you find in the Old Testament are based on these five. Uh, Usually not all of them are made at the same time. Sometimes they were. Sometimes there were uh, special feast days that emphasized one offering more than the others. For example, at Pentecost, uh, the grain offering was emphasized on that day. The sin and the trespass offerings were emphasized on the Day of Atonement. So those would be the the main offerings on those days. After we're through with these offerings, what I hope to do is extend just a little bit. We're going to talk about priesthood uh, after we're finished with these. uh, But also I want to talk to you about... That one special day, the Day of Atonement, and talk uh, talk to you a little bit about that day and what a special day of offerings that that was. So, as we've discussed for the past, past few weeks, the sin offering and the trespass offerings are are similar in some respects, but they're different in others. The terms appear to be almost identical. Sometimes these are used interchangeably when we speak of sins and trespass, but In the Old Testament, these are separate offerings, and they do have separate purposes. So we're used to referring to stealing and lying and adultery as sins, and they are sins. But in these last two offerings, it's more correct to refer to those as trespasses, just as Jesus said in the prayer that I read just a moment ago, for if ye forgive men their trespasses, and he referred to individual sins. So it wouldn't have been proper for Jesus to say, Forgive men their sin, as in the sin offering, because that would be talking about the sin nature you wouldn 't ask God to forgive somebody 's sin nature, but you do ask God and we ask uh, for forgiveness for the things that we do that are the trespasses, things that flow out of that sinful nature. so last week, uh, I gave you this definition, or we talked about it in this way, that the sin offering is for that it atones for the evil heart while the trespass offering atones for sins of evil behavior. And so in the sin offering, we, we don't see any individual sins listed, but there are several types of individuals mentioned. But in the trespass offering, there isn't any distinction in the individuals, but we do see representative sins that need to be atoned. So the trespass offering has a unique way Of approaching this which might seem a little bit confusing to us unless we are very careful to maintain these distinctions because if we don't then we get a trespass offering that looks like works righteousness we can't have that we end up we would end up doing as Roman Catholics do and say that a sinner is justified by his faith in Christ and also by his works and that his works help to maintain his justification. And we can't come up with that picture because that error ruins the basis of righteousness, which is the finished work of Christ. There can't be anything added to that. So I'd like to talk tonight about the, um, some of the remarkable distinctions between these two offerings. And, and some of those things are, are unique when we talk about trespass offering. But before we get to, go, get to those, let me just very, speak very briefly about similarities. The similarities are the types of animals that are brought. Uh, they're the same. Leviticus 4 and 5, these offerings run together. And so when we see sins plural, and we're going into the trespass offering, then the animals that are brought are usually a, a ram and a female uh, a female uh, sheep. And then if for the poor people, the, the uh, birds are brought. So these two offerings are also alike in character. They are both non-sweet savor. And thus they are repulsive in their depictions of sin. They demonstrate God's, uh, God's uh, hatred of sin, especially as far as his son is concerned when those sins are placed upon him. And so in both offerings, the, the animals are taken outside of the camp to be burned in total, which symbolizes God's rejection of his own son when those sins were placed upon him. And then in this text, we see categories of sin, they consist of two types, but I'm going to add a, a general category to that. Uh, in the previous message, we uh, spent a good deal of time talking about guilt, and this offering is called a guilt offering because it is designed to take away the guilt of sin, both legally and emotionally, and allows us to stand before God no longer under the condemnation of the law. Now, there are two categories of sin that produce guilt. They match guilt. The divisions of the law. The first is sins against God. So we started with this then. Guilt from sins against holiness. These are sins that are directly against God's character. And all sins are against his character, of course. The entire law is about God's character. But there are sins that are against God in the first table of the law. That's what we're talking about here. There are sins against God who stands exclusively in the purity of Of holiness the second half of the commandments are sins against men and thus indirectly against God now in verse 15 we read if a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance in the holy things of the Lord then he shall bring for his trespass unto the Lord a ram without blemish so what we want to look at uh, in this message tonight is what are the ways that we can sin against holiness how do we sin against God's holiness Well, the first way that we sin against holiness is by disrespecting and dishonoring God. Now, according to this verse, there are sins of ignorance, and we explored that thought last week, that we are less aware when we have offended God than when we have offended people. And when our trespasses against each other, we know when we have offended because we know how we want to be treated. All of us, since the time that we were children have heard this your mother taught it to you comes right out of the bible uh, paraphrasing do unto others as you would have them do unto you we we recognize that and so as i said last week when we cross that line we don't have any trouble figuring out that we have hurt someone or sinned about someone else but when we don't as easily recognize that those sins are also against god then we are going to offend him and we don't recognize it because we don't physically see god we don't see him face to face there are no facial expressions for us to see when we've sinned against him there's no body language that we can observe God often seems far away from us and out of mind and if we're not aware that all sin offends God and that God is offended more than the people that we actually offend then we're going to lose sight of all these times that we sin against God's holiness and so We don't see the facial expressions, we don't see the body language, we don't see the crestfallenness of the heart, but all of those things are amplified when God is considered because it is greater sin to sin against the greater. And so if our sins against man are also against God, the greater sin has to be against God because He is the greater of the two. But it seems Scripture would have us to consider sins against God's holiness in another way that we offend God in the way that we worship Him. Now, the details of the sacrifices, the specifics of tabernacle worship, point us to a God who does not allow us to come to Him and worship Him haphazardly. Now, I think that Solomon was very keenly aware of this, very sensitive to this issue. He built this magnificent temple as a reflection of God's holiness, The sacrifices made at the dedication of the temple were just showed how he took care to respect God's directions in worship. And remember, we talked about this some weeks ago, that there were so many sacrifices that were made in the dedication that it was impossible for all those offerings to be made on the altar that was for that purpose. And Solomon showed that he understood God when he took care to consecrate the entire courtyard before he offered those sacrifices anywhere but on that one altar. And he was very careful, I think, to seek God's permission for this because he knew that God's orders have to be followed without deviation. And so the consecration of the court was by God's permission, and if that hadn't happened, God would not have accepted any of those sacrifices. This one altar that God said you are to make, that's the one where sacrifices are to be made. And then we see a remarkable example of this in Numbers chapter 9 about these kinds of specifics. So if you'll turn to Numbers 9 for just a moment, there's an incident in this chapter where some men were very sincere about their desire to worship God, um, to worship the Lord at Passover, and they had been excluded by God's specific rules. God was specific about two things regarding the Passover. He said the Passover must be made on the 14th day of the first month. And he said that anybody who has been defiled before the Passover must go through the rite of purification before he can take part in the Passover offering. So those are two requirements that God had that admitted to no exceptions. But what if someone was sincere? And they wanted to worship God in the Passover, and they would do that gladly. But there are adverse circumstances that arise, and through no fault of their own, by accident or not even thinking, somehow they become defiled, so they're unable to observe the Passover. What are they supposed to do? Passover is a very important event, and it happens one time a year. Um, They were more serious about that than we would be about skipping Christmas. So what do they do then if they inadvertently are defiled at the time of the Passover. Well, Numbers gives us some information about that. We start at verse number 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they were come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the children of Israel also keep the Passover at his appointed season. In the fourteenth day of this month at even, ye shall keep it in its appointed season according to all the rites of it, And according to all the ceremonies thereof, shall ye keep it. Those are God's instructions. This is the way that it must be done. But we go down to the 6th verse, and we see there's a problem here. In the 6th verse, And there were certain men who were defiled by a dead body of a man, that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and before Aaron on that day. And those men said unto him, We are defiled by the dead body of a man. Wherefore are we kept back, that we may not offer an offering of the Lord in his appointed season among the children of Israel? And Moses said unto them, Stand still, and I will hear what the Lord will command concerning you. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If any man of you, or of your posterity, shall be unclean by reason of a dead body, or be in a journey afar off, yet he shall keep the Passover unto the Lord, the fourteenth day of the second month at even shall they keep it, and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it under the morning, nor break, nor break any bone of it. According to all the ordinance of the Passover, they shall keep it. But the man that is clean, and is not in a journey, and forbeareth to keep the Passover, even the same soul shall be cut off from among his people. Now, there God says, now if nothing like that has happened, then you, if you do have this issue of uh, missing the Passover because of defilement, you can wait until the second month on the 14th day and observe it then. But nobody else can do that. Uh, Unless you have this excellent excuse, the one that's accepted, you must observe the Passover on the correct day. If you don't, you get cut off from the people. Then he uh, he says, Even the same soul shall be cut off from among his people, because he brought not the offering of the Lord in his appointed season. That man shall bear his sin. And if a stranger shall sojourn among you and will keep the Passover unto the Lord, according to the ordinance of the Passover and according to the manner thereof, so shall he do. He shall have, ye shall have one ordinance both for the stranger and for him that was born in the land. Now there you see these two men that come to Moses and they have a very, very deep concern for following God's instructions exactly. Why are they so concerned about these instructions? Why do they have to have permission? Well, there's perhaps two very important pieces of information that shed some light on it. First would be the death of Nadab and Abihu. Remember that? Uh, They intruded on God's holiness when they offered strange fire. That could have been on their minds. But then there's another thing. Um, It could be the instructions that God gave to the sons of Kohath in Numbers 4, verse 15. There it says... And when Aaron and his sons have made an end of covering the sanctuary and all the vessels of the sanctuary, as the camp is to set forward, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to bear it, but they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. These things are the burden of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of the congregation. Now after the people heard these things and they saw what happened to Nadab and Abihu, you can imagine that for a good while after this, they were very, very careful about what they did with God. They tiptoed around God. Later, violations of these commandments caused swift punishment from God. In uh, uh, David's time, Uzzah touched the Ark of the Covenant, and that was violation of the instructions for Kohath. Now, Uzzah happened to be a Kohathite, and he touched the Ark. And so God struck him dead. At another time, King Uzziah entered into the temple and he made a sacrifice, which only the priest could do. And so God struck him with leprosy and then he died as a leper. So Uzziah violated the law of the priest and in ignorance, he usurped the position of Christ because only Christ has the position of both kingship and priesthood. And so when he did that, in his ignorance, he, you, uh, maybe we don't even understand how significant that incident was because not only did he offend the Aaronic priesthood, but much more importantly, he offended the Melchizedekian priesthood, which is higher than the Aaronic priesthood. And so he took the priest office into kingship, as I said, only the Lord Jesus Christ can do. So that teaches that we can't trust ourselves about how God wants to be worshipped. Now returning to Solomon, the temple was built that he built was to set part, set God apart as holier than all gods, that Jehovah is above all gods, the expense of that temple, the construction, the ornate construction the the plenteous amounts of gold that went into it, the decorum of all the servants, all of that spoke of the holiness of God. Now, Roman Catholics in in their false system tried to emulate the Old Testament priesthood and to keep others out. Their priests are the only ones that are able to intercede for forgiveness and give absolution. And by doing this, they deny the priesthood of the believer and they elevate the church above the Word of God. And so naturally what Roman Catholics would do then is to build massive cathedrals without sparing any expense. So they have their high altars, they have their furnishings, their buildings, their rituals, their vestments. And all of that is venerated and considered holy, so much so that all of these outward trappings that they have are as important to them as God. Now, Protestants recognize that. People, Protestants that came out of the Roman Catholic Church, these great cathedrals were actually built on their backs. They're the ones that financed all of this. They're the ones that had to go through all these Roman Catholic Catholic rituals. And so the backlash of the Reformation was to reject all of the symbols that were in Catholicism and go to a simplistic worship style. And in varying degrees, according to, to which one of these that you're talking about, which Protestants, some of them hold on more to things that are done in Roman Catholicism than others. Uh, some take some of it others reject all of it in toto. They want nothing to do with anything that smacks of Rome. Now, in my personal opinion, there is a middle ground to be found here. There's a danger in rejecting all of the aesthetics and reducing worship below a formality that sets God apart in holiness. And if we do that, we lose respect for God and the worship is degraded, and the result of that when you throw everything out is you get rock and roll bands and you get frenzied charismania that comes out of it. Worshipers or worship rather becomes designed for worshipers and not for God. Now, to be honest with you, I, I have a beef with some of our Baptist churches about this. I know that some of you came out of Catholicism, and anything that reminds you of it, it's just strictly verboten. I remember that there were some former Catholics that were shocked when I offered that it would be good for our children to be taught through catechism. And that word catechism, that just rang a harsh bell in the, in the auditorium because those of you that have been in Catholicism, you've been through the catechism, and that sounds like a beeline to Rome. Well, of course, I didn't mean that we ought to teach the Catholic catechism. I didn't mean that. Um, Catechism is a legitimate teaching method. In fact, our Baptist forefathers used that. They insisted that their children would be taught by catechism. So I understand the objection, though, that that word, that just has the wrong feeling to it, the wrong taste to it, and I understand that. There was a similar thing that happened with our observance of the Lord's Supper. Um, When I became the pastor, some of you were surprised at the difference in the way that I present the supper. And the Bible doesn't actually give us directions for how the Lord's Supper is to be done. We we know, of course, that we don't treat it as a mass. We don't venerate the elements. We don't consecrate the elements. But most of you are used to just plain old independent Baptist methods of, of, of taking the Lord's Supper. And in and, and many of the churches, the Lord's Supper is just tacked on to the end of the service like a insignificant necessity that we have to do because we've got to fit in this other ordinance somewhere so let's just have the lord's supper now in these last few minutes before we leave so when i became pastor i wanted us to make our own bread instead of buying it let's make our own bread because i want to do a demonstration of breaking bread and then i said leave some cups in the in the trays there for me to fill because i want to pour the cups and specifically There are seven cups that I've asked to be left so that I can fill those cups. But some folks, when I added this visual to the Lord's Supper, it just didn't sound right, didn't feel right for some reason. And and maybe that goes back to a Catholic background, like we're trying to do too much in the Lord's Supper. Well, I don't see it that way. I I think that we we need to respect the, the Lord's Supper and do it in reverence. And I think that that helps us to... Uh, present the lord's supper in that way but i've learned this baptists are very hard to deal with you know that we're set in our ways we're just hard to deal with we don't have very much of an idea of sanctuary we don't have much of an idea of reverence in the lord's church now this is not a criticism but like what brother dalton said just a minute ago don't we have fun in church and we all say amen yes well in a sense yes we do have fun in church well we got to be very careful about how we conduct ourselves and, and I think that in many many ways we need a little bit more decorum we need some more reverence and I even chastise myself for this because I like to joke about things and and I've just kind of stepped on my own toes sometimes and smacked myself upside the head because I think that we need to be a little bit more reverent and I don't think these things are done overnight we've got the independent Baptist culture in us but this is, this is actually where I've been moving. That's what the call for worship was for. That's one of the reasons I put that in. One of the reasons that I returned to doing some responsive reading with the congregational uh, reading of, the, of, the, uh, uh, of that text uh, during the song service. That's part of this. And so perhaps our services could add more prayer to them. We could have a time of confession And I don't mean you got to go see me next door in a booth or something. That's what I'm talking about. But a time of confession of sin, perhaps it would be good to have a a time for affirmation of our faith. Articles of our faith, for instance, that would be a good thing to do. Uh, And this is one of the reasons why, when I talk about a pulpit, what I want to do is to accentuate the power of God from the pulpit. And the aesthetics, I think, many times are important for us. And I don't see a sense in throwing everything out because someone misused these things in the past. I think there's a time to return to the reverence, um, the sanctuary setting in our churches. So we've got to be aware that we are judged by God's standard, not by ours. And I think about the introduction of gospel songs in revivalism in the 19th century, that much of that has been harmful to our worship rather than helpful. Because there have been a lot of songs that have been developed that we sing about Jesus being our buddy. Jesus is the buddy. And there's nothing wrong with calling Jesus our friend. I'm not saying that. But we just get this familiarity with God. And Jesus is our big buddy when we really ought to respect and reverence the holy name of Jesus Christ. And when we come here to worship Him, we're glorifying God and setting Him up Above us all, not just to be that buddy that everybody likes to sing about. Well, how else might we dishonor God? Well, corporate worship is critical. It's very important. But going on, we can actually look at the commandments as an outline for sins against holiness. The very first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now, right here, I can insert all those messages on the Ten Commandments. And I know you're not ready for that. You don't want to sit through that again. So I'm just going to give you a brief synopsis of these first commandments. These first four are about sin or sins against holiness, God's holiness. So the commandments start out, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And there, the first commandment, we're taught that it's trespass against God's holiness to have anything in our lives that pushes God out of first place. Israel was vividly taught that with the prominence of the tabernacle in the midst of their camp. there in the center of the camp. Their lives were built around the worship of God. In the center of the camp, there's the tabernacle, and above it in the daytime is a column of a cloud of smoke that stands over it. At nighttime, there is a pillar of fire. There is no mistaking that God is there. Their lives are consumed with the worship of God. He is always first. The second commandment said that we're not to make images for worship. False Christianity sins against the holiness of God with churches that are filled with idols. Statues of Mary, statues of dead saints, statues of angels, statues of popes. In the Eastern Orthodox churches not so much of that, but they have the iconography and they have the the uh, artworks, but the same principle is their image worship is in these false churches. Catholicism will tell you, no, we don't worship the idols. That's not what we worship. But the rest of the world sees exactly what Roman Catholics deny. Even Islam, 10 centuries ago, recognized that the Roman Catholics worship idols. And that's why they broke into their churches and broke down their idols throughout the Middle East. They recognize that Roman Catholics worship idols. But we think, sitting here tonight, that we don't have that problem, do we? We don't have any images. We're not guilty of idolatry. But we're ignorant to think so because we do have idols in our heart. I'd like you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 8. And we find an interesting metaphorical description of this or demonstration. In Ezekiel chapter 8 and beginning in verse number 11... I'll give you just a second to get there. Ezekiel 8 and verse 11. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this scripture. Ezekiel 8, verse 11. And there stood before them 70 men, of the ancients of the house of Israel. And in the midst of them stood Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand. And a thick cloud of incense went up. Then he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery? For they say, The Lord seeth us not, and the Lord hath forsaken the earth. He said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Now first, we need to recognize this is a literal scene. This is not imaginary here. This actually happened that the priests in Israel gave lip service to God, But secretly, in the temple, they had these rooms that were filled with idols. And so on the outside, they would pretend that they would worship God, but they would go inside to their rooms with the idols there, and they would worship these false gods. Now, the metaphorical that we find in this is that we do the very same thing when we come here to sing, to preach, and to pray, but all of it's just outward activity. That there isn't anything really taking place in the heart. So we are as the Jews were. Jesus said, this people, Matthew fifteen eight, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And when our heart is far away from God, it's not empty, and we're not just blank, we've got something in God's place. And those are the idols that we worship. And the most frequent idol that we worship is self. Ultimately, everything that you put in front of God is a demonstration of self-worship. And so when we come to church and we make worship, or we say that we're worshiping, and we do it without consulting God, we're guilty of building houses of self-worship. This is for us not for God. The prosperity gospel is a gospel of self. Copeland, Myers, Dollar, Jakes, Osteen, all these others, they're self-promoters, they're self-actuators, self-esteem gurus. All of them stick self in front of everything. And it's no wonder that they would develop what's called the little God doctrine. I explained that to you before, the little God doctrine, which essentially says that all of us are little gods. And that God, we can command God to do what we want him to do. If we have enough faith, God has to respond to that faith. We command God. So these are people that don't have idols of stone chiseled out and sitting in front of their churches. But they have idols nonetheless. They are filled with idols. They sin against God's holiness with idol worship. Now the third commandment, is thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And that perhaps is the one that we abuse so much and do it ignorantly because we're so mindless in our speech. Conversations are laced with OMG and Christ and God Almighty and the like, and it's thoughtless, it's just automatic. God is like another punctuation marking the sentence. And that is a sin against God's holiness. Then there's the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now we're going to separate this one, and we're going to make another letter for this one. How do we sin against God's holiness? The second way is neglect and abuse of worship. The Westminster Catechism begins, even non-catechism proponents know this, Uh, It begins, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to the catechism's question is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The first part of that references Psalm 86. So you might want to read Psalm 86 sometime and see what your chief duty towards God is. So God has a day for us to glorify Him. The Ten Commandments verify that. They say it is the Sabbath. Now, the question for us is not, it's not, is Saturday the Sabbath? The question is, is there a Sabbath? Is there still a Sabbath? Sabbath means rest. And so is there a day that's been set aside for rest from normal activities? Is there a day that's been made especially for God? And then further than that, we have to ask a question, is there a Christian Sabbath? Now, to me, that's, that's beyond argument. The constant use of the term the Lord's Day in the New Testament verifies to me that there is a Christian Sabbath. Every day belongs to God, we have no doubt about that, but there is one day that has this very special designation. It is called the Lord's Day. So God gave us six days that we are to use wisely for self. And when I say for self, I don't mean, well, we just mindlessly go about what we do because those are our days. No, we always consider God every, every day and everything that we do. But there's that one day that God has set aside for corporate and private worship and its transgression of God's holiness to use that day for ourselves. In Exodus 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all, them, all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. The Sabbath was non-negotiable in Israel. In fact, God's punishment of Israel was not only for idolatry, not only for adultery, fornication, and all these sins, it was also for the neglect and abuse of the Sabbath day. In Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Now there, in in words of rebuke, in one sense, he says to them, if you reserve my day, and you don't use it for yourself, as you've been doing, then you have these very, very special promises from me, that I'm going to take care of you. And if you abuse the Sabbath, then there'll be punishment for it. Now, you can read Jeremiah 17, 19 to 27, Nehemiah 13, 15 to 22 for more information about the abuse of the Sabbath day and what, how God uh, re- regarded that. So we have this importance then of, of, of worshiping God on the Sabbath. And we don't need to argue, is there a change from days from Saturday to Sunday? That's evident by the Scriptures what we need to concern ourselves is the principle. What is the principle of the Sabbath? And to that we say that the Sabbath is an established, creational principle. In Genesis 2, verse 3, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all the work which God created and made. The day is sanctified. That means set apart to God. Now suppose that Adam... Never touched the forbidden fruit. Never went to the tree. But then on the eighth day after creation, he decided that he was going to till the garden. What would have happened? Well, that would have been a sin against God. Now, he would have violated God's command. Now, Adam wouldn't have done that, of course, until he'd eaten of the tree. But what this shows, well, first of all, that Adam was under, under a covenant of works. Before he ate of the tree, he's under a covenant of works. There, His, his life is sustained by his obedience. But the point that I'd like to make is the the the, the Sabbath was established before Adam did the first act of tilling the garden, and it was established before God ever told him about a tree. The Sabbath is already in place, and God says, you are to worship me on the Sabbath. You are to observe this day that God rests. So the command is given before the tree, and I don't know how God could have made that more binding, to say this goes all the way back to creation, and this is not going to change. So all the history of the world, God has a special day that's reserved for Him. So here we have, right at the top of the list here, no other gods, and there are to be no graven images. There is to be no one who uses the Lord's name in vain. And right here at the top of the list of all of these things is the unique holiness of God in worshiping God on the Sabbath. So we have to be very, very careful about using the Lord's day as our day. But then there's some who'll come back and say, well, what about Christian liberty? Where does that fit into all this? What about our Christian liberty? Well, Christian liberty has ample room. God said you don't have to go through all the rituals that were gone through before, so you don't worry about those. And so you ask a question, well, can we take a vacation? The answer, yes, you can take a vacation. Can we never miss a Sunday? And I'd say, no, you can miss some Sundays, but always remember this, the Lord's day is still his. And there's no reason for us to argue about it because you can read the Word of God the same as I. We both have the same Bible and so you can determine by it, are you using or are you abusing the Lord's day? It's his day. And then there's abuse of worship, which we've we've discussed that in other ways. But let me return to this for just a minute. And I want to add that changing doctrines in the church is also abuse of worship. God has a very specific way in the way that he wants to worship. Now, for example, in the New Testament, it defines the ordinances. These are the means of worshiping God. You cannot change the ordinances and still worship God. Now every morning when I get up, I read, I read, and I read. You often get to hear the benefit of my reading. And I read an article a few days ago that I thought was just a total waste of time. Sometimes that happens. You read a lot, and some of it's just not worth reading. But the, the title of the article caught my, caught my eye because it said, When Should Doctrine Divide? How much error should there be before doctrine separates us? When is cooperation no longer possible? Well, this author wrote about ten minutes of reading, and he never answered that question. Oh, he, he, was, he was quite philosophical about it, but I want to know, well, the title of your article, What Doctrines Divide, that's what I want to know. Which are the ones that divide us? Where will you go that I'm sure that I'm not going to go with you? Now, most of you know that the door that I walk through is a very narrow squeeze, The threshold of my tolerance is very, very low for other people that don't teach the truth. I struggle with Baptists that I don't want to associate with, much less other denominations. But on a personal level, there are Christians that I can sit with, and I can talk with, and I can fellowship with. I can sit down with a Presbyterian, if he's a PCA or an OPC, because I know that he has the right doctrine of salvation. So I can sit down, I can talk, and I can fellowship with him. But church fellowship, that is a different matter. Now, Baptists that I have trouble with, they're more off-putting because of personality issues on a personal level. I don't like the arrogance of many Baptist people, but I suffer them because of ecclesiology. I mean, I can go with them on that. A Presbyterian, though, I can't do. Why can't I do it? Because they worship differently, and I think that they worship wrongly. So how do they do that? Well, corporate worship is a church matter, and they're wrong in their ordinances of the church. For instance, they can't be members of our church, not until they can't fellowship with us and be members, not until they're ready to change from being pedo-baptist to credo-baptist. That's the difference between baby sprinkling and believer's baptism. So they have to change that before they can be members of our church. The reason for their baptism is wrong. The method of their baptism is wrong. The candidate for their baptism is wrong. And so they offend God's holiness by perverting His ordinances. It's like an Israelite bringing a a snake for a sacrifice instead of a sheep. Well, sure, you could could kill either one of those. But God's not going to accept either one of those. And another problem is the Lord's Supper. They say it's a sacrament, which loosely defined as a means of grace. That's an issue for us. Whether it's baptism or the Lord's Supper, they say they are sacraments. Now, I know there's some of you that read Table Talk as, as I do, and, and you've well discovered that the magazine is excellent in some ways, but needs to be read with a discerning mind in other ways. And in the daily devotional reading of June the 9th, the article said... Baptism itself does not justify us, but in baptism, God promises to remove the sins of all who believe the gospel. John Calvin comments that salvation is not contained in the outward symbol of water, but baptism tells us the salvation obtained by Christ. Now, that statement I find to be utterly confusing and erroneous. What are they trying to tell us there? Does baptism remove sin or does it not? Do we need baptism to remove sin? Can it be removed without it? And if it can't, do we have to be baptized to be saved? So the statement is erroneous to me. It makes no sense to me. And this is what happens when you try to preserve a sacramental view of salvation. It becomes dangerous and very misleading. And then on the Lord's Supper issue, this is the table talk comment in the end of the same week, in the last article. Take seriously the sacrament of Holy Communion. In the Lord's Supper, we have a physical sign and seal of what Christ has done for us. The preaching of the Word and the administration of the Lord's Supper are means of grace that encourage us in our lives and, again, reminds us of who we are and what we have received in Christ. Now, there's another statement that sounds good, at least on the surface it does, but now I want to know, what do you mean by a means of grace? What is a means of grace? And if if they're saying, well, this is a physical act, that taking this as the way that you receive grace, then you have elevated to the level of the gospel. And you've elevated it to the level of the word. And then, as usual, you find that Protestants are what they've always been, just one step away from Catholicism. So that affects our ability to worship them, because we worship God in the way that He prescribes while they have come to God and substituted another animal, not the one that God requires. Now, you see the comparison? That God is particular. He is specific about worship. And you cannot take His ordinances. You cannot take His forms of worship and change them to suit you. You can't do that and still worship God. Now, it's a minute till I'm out of time. But I want to mention as we close that this is the same problem that we have with charismatic churches and their practice of speaking in tongues and healing and trying to mimic the New Testament gifts of the Spirit. Those are not gifts for today. And if you try to use those to worship God, that is an attack against God's holiness. They don't magnify the Spirit by what they do. They blaspheme God and they mock Him. So I just have to ask the question, how can we worship with them? They're not worshiping God. And then when I see their other practices, how do we worship with somebody who has a woman pastor, who believes it's all right for women to preach from the pulpit, pastor churches, how do we worship with them? Well, I say, you can't do that. Because if you violate the Scripture and what you teach in the church, how can you worship God? So we can go on and on and on about this. There are doctrines that divide us and they ruin our ability to worship God as he says he wants to be worshiped. That's trespass. That's exactly what we're talking about here. Israel had to ask forgiveness for sins against God's holiness. Sometimes they just got it wrong, and we do too. Sometimes we just get it wrong in our worship, and what do we need to do? We need to come and confess that. And we need to say, we've trespassed against God. And the question is then, can you be forgiven when you trespass God's holiness? That's the purpose of the sacrifice. That's why they've been given the sacrifice. It's what's typified exactly in this. You can be forgiven by, if you've transgressed God's holiness. You just ask for it. Repent of the sin and ask for it. Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. So the way that you get it right, get worship right, there is forgiveness. And I think as a church, we need to consider this. Do we need to come to God and ask for forgiveness in the way that we have misused and abused His days of worship? We've misused God's holiness. We don't reverence His name as we should. Maybe we just have a little bit too much of the wrong kind of fun when we're in church. You know, I like a joke as as well as the next guy, but... One of the things that I've tried to do, uh, I, 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 I make a confession to you. When I first became pastor of the church, that, um, you know, I've listened all my life to a lot of preaching. And I have to say that I sit in the pew and the ones that, yeah, that really got my attention. When, when I'm thinking according to the carnal man, the thing that gets my attention is the guy who stands in the pulpit and tells jokes. That's what we remember, jokes. And we walk out of church and we remember Jokes. And nothing that was said from the word of God, so I just decided I would stop telling any jokes. I found it was harder I can't tell jokes anyway. So I found it was harder for me to find a joke to tell on Sunday that would somehow in some way fit the sermon that I was going to preach. That was harder than actually studying the scriptures. It was. I can't, I can't tell jokes. I mean, you know, I've always told you about Les Crandall who said, "You know what you really need to do, just stop telling jokes. You can't tell jokes. And I can't, so if, it, if I say anything, it happens to be a little bit funny. It, it comes out maybe a little bit naturally, not because I'm planning it for you. But anyway, we need to, we need to be careful about holiness. Let's, let's reverence God in what we do here. Let's be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we do want to respect your holiness. We do want to lift up your name. Uh, There is no question in reading these things in the Old Testament about how specific you are about worship and being sure that we do not degrade your holy name in any way. Lord, help us not to be guilty of that. And if there are ways that we can show that we reverence you, um, not looking at rituals and think that we're holier than other people because we do something in a certain way, but truly reverencing you because we recognize you as almighty god help, help us to do that in our hearts and honor you every single day of our lives and come into this building as a place of sanctuary where we know you are to be worshiped and we thank you lord for it bless our people give us a safe holiday as everybody uh, has fun away from work tomorrow and what their other things that they'll be doing just bless our people in jesus name we pray amen thank you for listening to this presentation